Welcome to another edition of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. What's up, Joe? How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year Even to you. This is our second Second podcast. show of yeah. 2018, but a good one, and one we've been wanting to have for a long time. Mm-hmm. So with no further ado, why don't you set this up? Yep. So one, one thing is we've always talked about young people in the business, disruptors. Um, and we have with us today someone who is a disruptor who didn't start in this business and has had a storied career until he was 47, correct? So Dr. Harvey Schiller is with us, Brigadier General. Uh, I could go down the whole list. Um, head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, helped found Turner Sports, helped found the Yes Network, Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, was the head of a wrestling network, at, a wrestling pr- uh, promotion at one point, um, head of the International Baseball Federation, where we first met, um, we could go on and on and on and on. Founded the, the rugby club at Michigan, where he got his PhD. Uh, was the college roommate at the Citadel of Paul McGuire and was recruited to the Citadel by Al Davis. Wow. Um, I don't know where we... Oh, we, we'll touch oh, you a You forgot entrepreneur, entrepreneur and investor and advisor and yep. over and, these last um, few years. The only person, I think, who worked for both Ted Turner and George Steinbrenner, reported yep. directly. So... Uh, Dr. Harvey Schiller, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. You left out America's Cup sailing. I did leave out. Well, I left out a lot of things, I'm sure. <laughs> Father of two, recently come back, came back from Israel. Yeah. Um, did, has done, tried every sport except for skeleton in the Olympics. I haven't done skeleton. I tried luge, bobsled, and even ski jumping. Wow. wow. And, and how did that go? It was scary. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the team member said, no, no one gets hurt. It was up at Lake Placid. They have a, they have a, practice jump, which is a 20-meter run with a, still a six-foot lift. And, uh, you know, once you put your skis in the ruts, you're going down that rut. And I flailed because if you really know ski jumpers, none of them are 6'4". <laughs> <laughs> um, Brooklyn native. Um, there's a lot of other things we can get into. One thing we do want to touch on with the movie I, Tanya coming out. Uh, Dr. Schiller was the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee during the whole Tanya Harding, Nancy Wow, Kyle. okay. Uh, debacle. So maybe, interesting. Maybe need a, a couple of minutes on that. Yeah. So one one thing I want to do is um, just briefly touching on your career. One of the more interesting stories because we have a lot of people who are young people who follow this podcast and listen in. Um, can you touch on how you got started volunteering at the um, the LA Olympics and then the path that got you to the Southeastern Conference uh, and the story of your son? Well. Um, Interestingly, as a lot of people when I was younger, was interested and played sports, uh, but had a career in the Air Force. And as you mentioned, when I was in graduate school, sponsored by the Air Force, working on my doctorate, I got involved with the rugby club, but also got involved in the club sports system. Hard to believe looking at the University of Michigan now and the facilities that they have, that effectively they only had really major sports when I was, this is in the 60s. And um, sports like soccer or anything women, uh, a good example is Mickey King, who uh, was an Olympic diver in Mexico City and such, was a student at Michigan, but her diving, she had to wait till the men left the pool because mm-hmm. they had no women's program. And it, the clubs that started at that point were everything from lacrosse to soccer to other things. And I was the president of the club system. And we worked really, really hard to try to move them into varsity status. And Don Cannon was the athletic director in those days, and he was very, very supportive of doing things. But there are a lot of stories we can go into there. Um, the real 
in a formal way started in um, when I was first assigned to the Air Force Academy. The U.S. Olympic Committee had been in New York City for its headquarters and relocated to an old Air Force base in Colorado Springs, Ent Air Force Base. And what they tried to do was replicate what the old Soviet Union was doing, having a national training center. Uh, fast forward a number of years, I actually visited that training center on the Black Sea, and it wasn't quite what we thought it would be, as you might <laughs> expect. Everything was cold, except there was no ice, and we had some professional athletes from the Hawks there, and uh, when they had an injury, there was no ice to put on them. <laughs> and, they had, and the Soviets had just done a deal with Pepsi-Cola, and they had no way to refrigerate it. <laughs> and uh, one of the famous lines that came out of that trip was, wait till they find out how this tastes cold. <laughs> so anyway, fast forward to my time at the academy. I was a permanent professor in the, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, and I became the NCA representative from the Air Force Academy and was on the NCA executive committee. That exposed me to a number of things in the collegiate world. And at the same time, as I mentioned, the U.S. Olympic Committee moved to Colorado Springs, and in addition to it setting up a training center, they wanted to duplicate what was called the Spartacade which was this national festival that the Soviets had of their own athletes, and they created a thing called the Sports Festival, mm -hmm. which eventually became the Olympic Festival, which now has disappeared. To show you how it, how, um, it started in 1978-1979, it was carried on live television on NBC. Wow, I didn't know that. And, and how it, that has differed so much wow. where a national sports festival went forward. And we had a lot of stars in those days. A lot of world records were broken. And most of the uh, events, the venues, were at the Air Force Academy. So I got there in 1978 and was just somebody who watched the events. And then uh, the superintendent of the academy at the time said, we're, we're bringing them back, but we've had, everybody said they've had a lot of trouble with the sport of boxing. And the trouble was a gentleman by the name of Bob Serkin, who was the president of USA Boxing, and he was a tiger. And he just ripped everyone. And uh, he happened to have been uh, an official in boxing, but never ran the organization. And they, the superintendent said, well, Harvey, you're about the only guy that can work with him. <laughs> so I became a volunteer for the sport of boxing. And uh, we had the event at the academy in 1979. And Sirkin sort of liked the way I operated with him and said, look, we're doing an event in New York City. It's going to be the first World Cup of boxing at the Madison Square Garden. Uh, I'd like you to come to the garden and run it. So I took a little, a uh, couple of extra days away from the Air Force and flew to New York. And um, I asked for the rosters of the, of the boxers and no one knew who they were. <laughs> so we had to make reservations at the old uh, Pennsylvania Hotel opposite the garden. And I went to the, the uh, person, that, the uh, hotel operator that had to do with accommodations. And I said, I have to make reservations for about 120 people. She said, give me their name. And I said, uh, there's uh, Great Britain A and Great Britain B. Okay, give me some more names. I said, there's uh, Kenya A and Kenya B. So I used the countries they were coming from, and we reserved all the rooms in their name. It was an interesting event because the Soviets had come. And uh, everybody was wondering how it would be like bringing them here to New York. <clears throat> I have one personal story. So the uh, Soviet coaches invited us to have... Uh, some caviar and vodka in their room at the hotel. So a guy by the name of Jim Fox, who now works with USA Figure Skating, was the executive director of uh, USA Boxing at the time. We go into the room, and um, 
we're talking to them, and I don't remember if it was Jim or me talking to the coaches, said, you know, it's too bad we don't have some bread to go with the caviar. There's a knock on the door. Who is it? It's the KGB guys in the next room. They were listening to everything we were doing. They brought us some bread. So, so yeah, that was, and, and, wow. and one thing led to another. So I had this dual track of doing Olympic stuff as a volunteer and being the stuff through the academy. And in those days, there were lots, you know, we can talk forever about the early days of television, but in the, sometime in the 80s, a group of colleges broke away from the NCAA television package. In those days, the NCAA television package for football made more money than the NFL. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hard for people to believe that. But they regulated which games would be on. So you'd home. always see Notre Dame, you'd always see Michigan. Right. But you'd also see the Ivies. Right. right. So it, wow. it worked across all of the, the schools and the conferences. And University of Georgia... And Oklahoma and a few other schools started this with a guy named Chuck Ninus. He used to work for the NCA, and he disliked the executive director, Walter Byers, and tried to create something against him. And they had this fight between the NCA and the others, and we all went to court. And the NCA sued the CFA, and the schools sued the NCA for the opportunity to put their games on television in a free basis. Mm. And the courts held, as was interesting part was that we... The schools were on both sides of paying the bills on both sides. We represented the NCA, but we represented the CFA. So the craziness worked out where whoever the presiding judge was, I think out of Chicago, said every school has a right to show its games to as many people as they can. And that's what you see now in television. Mm-hmm. So I just had lunch with uh, John Miller of NBC. He said, you know, there are some Saturdays there are seven games on at the same time. Yeah. In the old NCA package, that would never happen. Right. It was now, obviously, there's a lot more money. There are more broadcasters. There's over the top. You have sports channels. But in you, you're talking about the early 80s through, through 1984, 85, 86. This was the beginning of television in, as we see it now. Uh, one of the interesting things was, and this came up on lunch today again, was uh, when I was commissioner, we started talking a lot about, <clears throat> well, maybe we should... Two things happened. One is the Pac-10... Pac- 10 at the time, and the Big Ten were not part of the CFA package. And that was sort of against a lot of the schools like the SEC. We wanted to be together with them. So we started to scout around to putting our own television package. This is when you were at the Southeastern Conference. This right. at the Southeastern Conference. And uh, I can tell, I, I guess I jumped. Because uh, I want you to tell the story about Derek. How? Which is, okay, mm. I'll get to that. So if we're on the right track here. So... Um, Gene Corrigan, who eventually, who used to be an AD at Notre Dame mm-hmm. and the commissioner of the ACC, his son Boo is the AD at Army right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he was at Notre Dame and he got wind that we were shopping around. And he said to me, you know, if, if the Southeastern Conference does a deal outside of the CFA, College Football Association, Notre Dame will never play another SEC game, a team again. Gene leaves to go to the ACC and his successor breaks out of the CFA and does a deal with NBC. <laughs> so it tells you a lot about how things go on. And, and uh, we can, at another time, we can talk more and more how all that happened. But going back to the time when the, um, with the Olympic Committee, and uh, one of the things that I had an advantage of uh, doing boxing was that the 
organizers, Peter Uberth and others, were looking people who had some experience for the 84 games, and uh, I became the competition director. So I was still in the Air Force, and it was the summertime. I took what they call temporary duty and uh, ran the event. And that's when the famous time when Holofield, if you might remember, made a late hit on another, uh, another uh, boxer and was somewhat disqualified from that event and never won the gold medal. Well, he and I have remained friends through all these years, but there's an interesting side to that too, which I don't think I've ever told anyone. Uh, the, we uh, put in the context of what was then televised or not televised, but not every event was televised uh, as it is now between cable and other offerings. So we decided to record every single boxing event. <clears throat> and uh, I returned to the academy as probably not much more than a year later, I get a call from the FBI. We understand that you have the tapes of all of the boxing matches. Yes, we would like to have them. I said, sure, why? Well, do you remember there was a, um, there was a steamship, a cruise line, that was taken over by some Iranians? And remember, they threw one... The Achille Laura. Achille Laura. Achille Laura. Yeah. Leon Klinghoff. Leon Klinghoff. They did an opera about it. Yeah. Yeah. He lived in my neighborhood at the time. Well, it turns out that one of the perpetrators was in the boxing event in Los really? Angeles. Wow. And how did they know that? They picked up, they wanted to do a voice print from his voice from our telecast. Wow. wow. So any comment he made, you know, in the corner or when he was boxing with the referee, they wanted to use that as evidence. Wow. Interesting. Before social media. Uh, so. <laughs> Before social media. Yeah. So you never know how some of these things turn out. I thought it was going to have something to do with the KGB bringing you the bread for the caviar. No, no, no. <laughs> so anyway, so you get to, the opportunity comes up to be commissioner of the Southeastern Conference at a time when the SEC was a little bit scandalous. I so, wouldn't use the word scandalous, but what yeah. happened, what, what actually happened, the president of the NCA, and I was on the NCA executive committee at the time, and the NCA championships committee, at the same time, I was chairman of the Games Preparation Committee, the Olympic Committee. So I had this dual volunteer path between college. So I guess I'm one of the few people who been on the executive committee of the NCA and the executive committee of the Olympic Committee at the same time. So um, what happened was uh, the president of the NCA was the president of the vet school at Auburn, Will Bailey. And he said, I'd like you to come to Birmingham, Alabama and interview to be the uh, commissioner of the SEC. And I said... You know, I'm a professor at the Air Force Academy. I like my life. I'm still flying. I'm doing all these other things. He said, well, do it as a favor to me. So the night before the interviews, um, I went to the going away party for the then commissioner, uh, Boyd McWhorter. And everybody was walking up to Roy Kramer and congratulating him on being the commissioner, which was going to happen the next day. Now I'm thinking, why the heck am I here? It's just a wasted trip. <laughs> so uh, I was next to the last person to be interviewed. And I had no idea who the other people were, but I knew Roy was sort of waiting. Well, as you can imagine, the 10 presidents and chancellors of then Auburn, Alabama, LSU, Vanderbilt were sitting around the table and they couldn't get me out of there fast enough. You know, they wanted to get Roy in the room. And uh, uh, to show you how bad it was going, and uh, obviously you guys know I can be a bit sarcastic. <laughs> the chancellor of LSU said to me, well, how can we make the uh, Sugar Bowl, which they had a contract with, as attractive as the Rose Bowl. I said, well, you can move Disneyland to New Orleans. 
<laughs> it was time to get out of the room. So the president of the conference at the time was Gerald Turner, the chancellor of Mississippi, who's now the president of SMU. He's a PhD psychologist. I'm sitting at the end of the table in the old central bank building in Birmingham. And he turns to me and he says, I'm not so sure it's a good idea to bring someone from the military to be the commissioner. We're going to get accused of having a military mind in that position. I stood up and I said, I don't think it's so bad for a conference like yours, who has cheated a good portion of its existence, to take somebody from an institution where you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, but you certainly don't tolerate it. Have a nice day. And I walked out. Wow. So got on the phone. This is a, the other side of the story is really funny. Got on the phone, called my wife and said, we're not moving to Alabama from Colorado. We're okay. <laughs> Land in Colorado. Turner calls me up and says, we want to offer you the job, but we want to meet your family. So my son, Derek, who's now the president of the Braves. The Atlanta Braves, correct. Uh, and I did business with him when he was at the Thrashers. Oh, when good. When I worked at the NHL. And we talked about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, Derek is 14 at the time. And we pull him out of school. My daughter was a senior in high school. And we're going to have lunch with Gerald Turner and Joe B. Wyatt, who then was the chancellor of Vanderbilt. And on the way over to the restaurant, I say to Derek, do you know who the Southeastern Conference is? He said, no. I said, well, you better know the names of the schools. He says, okay. So I go through it. Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. You got it? Yeah, I have it. We go into the restaurant, we sit down, and Turner turns to Derek and says, you know the schools in the SEC? And Derek says, you know, my dad told me on the way over here, but I can't remember. And I said, we don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't steal. And there you go. So, <laughs> so that was the beginning of that change in careers. Uh, I still continue to do volunteer work with the USOC, and um, one thing leads to another. Yeah, speaking of that, I, I know you worked for Ted Turner. Um, could you tell us about that, how you met him and then and your experience of working with him? He's, uh, you know, without question, one of the most interesting business personalities in the 20th century in America, certainly one of the top few media personalities of the 20th century. And you had a, what sounds like a pretty interesting experience with him. Very, very interesting. First of all, I do want to say at the outset, he, Ted, I love him. Almost family, really. Uh, you know, a brilliant mind. Uh, we talked about people who've worked for Steinbrenner and others, but the truth is, Ted was really different than all of them. Uh, had his own weaknesses, obviously, but his strengths were his creativity and his ability to build. If he made a movie, you wouldn't believe that someone won America's Cup in sailing, started an international uh, television network, uh, owned a, te- a baseball team that won the Atlanta Braves owns more private land in the United States than anyone else, owns 10,000 head of uh, cattle and uh, buffalo, uh, and started a chain of restaurants, and you go on and married to a movie star, Jane Fonda. Well, that's Ted Turner's life, Mm -hmm. and it's not over. I mean, he's my age. uh, I just got a note from him over Christmas. And and, uh, how did I meet him? When I became the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, we had a... um, beginnings of a television deal with Turner for what was called the early broadcast. So all of our other games were on ESPN or CBS or others, but they wanted to do some games. And the early was you would kick off at 12.05. And if you can imagine, they could pick the games, but the other networks had first choice, which meant that 
during 10 or 12 weeks of a season, Vanderbilt was on a lot in our package <laughs> because Auburn and Georgia and Alabama were picked to be the other game that day by the other guys. It was a little bit controversial for the teams because a lot of our schools were on central time, which meant they were kicking off at 11 o'clock. And the coaches were saying, oh, it's hard to get ready for a game at 11 o'clock, but we were getting a lot of money. One of the things that did happen, I went to Ted and said, you know, my schools have few minorities in their athletic program. I would like you to support a minority fellowship at all of our 10 schools and a minority fellowship in our office. A couple of those people went on to be ADs in the SEC. That was the start of that. The person that I hired in my office is Charles Davis, mm -hmm. the voice of the NFL on Fox. Right, right. Wow. So Charles was one of the first people that worked for me at, 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 the, at the Olympic Committee and then eventually at Turner. But I brought Charles along everywhere. So he was like the sole African-American. <laughs> and we had an athlete, we had an ADs meeting in Jackson, Mississippi, hosted by the University of Mississippi, Mississippi State. And we had it at the Jackson Country Club. And I'm sitting at the dais and Charles is sitting next to me. He's got a waiter on either side of him. He says to me, look what I got. And I look at his plate. He has a steak bigger than the plate. Mm. He was the first black to ever eat in the dining room wow. at Jackson Country Club. Wow. Wow. There's certain advantages that you have to get the biggest steak on the table. Mm. So so how did it, you know, so that started the relationship with Ted. Okay. And he kept coming after me and coming after me when I was with the Olympic Committee. Uh, please come work for me. Please run sports. So a Turner Entertainment or whatever it was called back in the day, or in the initial days, was it already created? Or he Turner, was, there he was had Turner, an idea? Turner Entertainment was a subset of Turner Broadcast. Yes. They own they own more now, but they own multiple networks at the time. Okay, TV so they were he was already on his way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He had launched CNN early. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the codes to everything in the parking lot were all the start time dates of different things. Right. You know, when did CNN start? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, nineteen eight. You know, that those right. were his birthday. Right. You know, uh, eleven nineteen. I still remember that. That's <laughs> how you got in the parking lot. Right. People listening to this, by the way, you can get in the parking lot today with a little It's CNN. <laughs> Although most of the Turner stuff is moved off of their campuses. Yeah, right. So um, Ted, they had no one who was running sports specifically at the time. So we created Turner Sports, which we had relationships across the board. You know, we had a lot of inventory. At the time, we had all of the Braves home games on Turner. We even did some Pac-12 football, Pac-10 football, because no one else would take it. So we had the games free. We did mm -hmm. the Goodwill games. We had uh, Sunday night football, mm -hmm. effectively. We had we split it with ESPN. I we remember that. Half the first yeah. half of the early days of Sunday night football. That's another story how we lost that. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of stories. And we had a host of other events. We did and, Operation and some wrestling, right? We had professional wrestling. Commissioner. So, the other commissioner. I wasn't commissioner, but I was the president of WCW. Oh, you must have some stories there. Well, the start was... <laughs> The start was that I uh, was just started, well, two things happened at the start. One actually involved Jane Fonda. So uh, I was just hired, and I don't know if your students know um, how, what's called the Critics Tour. So the Critics Tour is held twice a year, usually in LA, and it's where the networks all present their programming for the six, next six months. So when you pick up either online or in print the upcoming show, you know, scripted show, effectively the 
uh, writers have seen that show before, right. mm -hmm. so they know how to write them. And uh, it's a big deal. It, it's not where they sell advertising, it's just where they promote their upcoming programming. And new guy, I was invited out because we were launching some stuff. One of them was a Jacques Cousteau series, which in combination with National Geographic. So we did a we did a big publicity event at the House of Blues. I don't know anyone. I'm standing there by the bar by myself, and Jane Fonda walks up. And she I had met her once before, and she says to me, They told me you were a pilot in Vietnam. Do you hate me? And I said, No, I defended your freedom like everyone else's. That's wow. why I was there. And she backed away. So it was a wow. beginning story. Wow. The next step of this is now I go back to Atlanta and I'm with a group and one of the people says to me, did you watch your wrestling show last night? I said, no. I said, well, one of your wrestlers fell out of the ring and broke his back. So I call up Eric Bischoff, who was the president, who was the guy, vice president. I said, Eric, when these things happen of this serious nature, you should call me. He said, you believed it? <laughs> it scripted. So I said, Eric, I'm coming to see you tomorrow. Tell me everything you know about professional wrestling. So I go to his office and I said, all right, you got to brief me. He said, you only have to remember one thing. In this business, if you can't talk, you can't wrestle because it's go. all talking. Right. And as you know, the businesses where the syndicated and other cable shows all lead to the pay-per-view. Yep. If you listen really carefully to the wrestlers talking and the talent, they're leading you up to to sign up for the pay-per-view at the end of the month. Right. And they don't, we never made any real money on the syndicated or the regular broadcasts, but made money at the end of the month right. on the pay-per-view. You know, and here's an interesting thing. I learned quickly that most of the wrestlers we had owned their own image. So for example, Hulk Hogan owned Hulk Hogan. It wasn't him, right. that wasn't his real name. But when we did a deal, we had to pay him as if he was Hulk Hogan. So if we did licensed merchandise or anything else, he got a big piece. So he was one of our highest paid wrestlers simply because we didn't own his image. Right. So he had us. So we started to create our own images. Right. And uh, one, one of them was, we went, Oscar Wiener was, uh, was one of the sponsors, but we also had a spam. And we decided that we would launch the Spam Man. And... <laughs> The ad agency for spam at the time, I don't remember what it was, called me up and said, ah, no, you can't do that. I said, why? It's going to hurt our image. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you're spam. <laughs> really? <laughs> spam man is going to hurt your image? I so anyway, Python one, had one already of, done one that. Of the, one of the early days. So it was a lot of fun. And obviously, we, one thing led to another. And we were acquired by Time Warner. And uh, wrestling, their wrestling parties faded away. A lot of stories about that. But, um, but you were yeah. actually competing with Vince McMahon and what was then WWF. So it did you have any run-ins with him? I, and uh, at one point, in or out of the ring, um, there was some there was some discussion about one point about merging them all together, uh, and for different reasons, neither party wanted to walk forward with that. Ted loved wrestling. Ted, Ted just if he found out that I might have changed the music, he would call me up and say, "I want the same damn music yet." I wouldn't change it, but he only knew it because somebody called him to tell him. Right. You know, it sounds like someone in the White House these yeah, days. But yeah. I don't want to go uh, there. So. He, he, you know, he was the creative guy, yeah. and and there's lots of stories about the things he did 
One of the ones I love is um, when 9-11 occurred, he, his apartment was still, he, did, he really was away from Time Warner, had sold to AOL, so he was gone. And he really had no position. They had the name for the company, but he had nothing there. And when 9-11 occurred, he went down to CNN newsroom and said, why isn't this story on every one of our networks? Why are we still showing entertainment on TBS and TNT? That's the way he would think. Mm. You know, it, everything was out of the box. Although, if you gave him an idea, it would be like devil's advocate. He'd toss it around his head for about 10 days and say, I have this idea. <laughs> I tried, he, always, he always would say, on my tombstone, they're going to put, he never owned a network, meaning ABC, NBC, and so forth. And there was an opportunity before GE acquired NBC to buy NBC. And he just hesitated too long to miss that opportunity. Mm. But obviously, uh, the return of broadcasting system doing really well. So before we get into today and entrepreneurship and learning and where you're getting your information from today, can you just briefly touch on the Tanya Harding situation when you were at the U at the USOC? And there is a story, there's always a story with Dr. Schiller, of I guess when you all walked into the room for the press conference and you told no one to smile. So, so it's pretty detailed, but basically what happened was when it was during the trials that Kerrigan got attacked. And effectively we were on our way to Wuhan. Excuse me, yeah, to, mm. for the event for the event. And I'm and sorry, what year was this again? This was nineteen ninety-four. CBS was the broadcaster. And we um, heard about the event and were waiting for US figure skating to make a decision because remember it was part of the trials. She wasn't picked for the team. And there were all sorts of accusations going back and forth at the time, but no one ever proved that she was party to what happened. Even to today, she says, I knew it, but was I party to it? So the U.S. figure skating put her on the team, but left it up to the U.S. Olympic Committee to decide whether she could participate. Did she violate any rule? The rules then were a little bit sketchy. Basically, they protected every athlete's right to compete. So the question, if I'm a criminal, can I still compete? You know, probably yes, because it's all about your athletic ability, not anything else. So the box that the USOC was put in was put in by figure skating because they, they didn't make a decision. So we're in Lillehammer, Norway, and the organizers of the game say, well, you're not going to hire, you're not going to have a hearing here for her, are you? We don't want Gilhuli and all those people over here. You're going to distract the games. So the executive committee, of which George Steinbrenner was a member at the time, mm -hmm. we made a decision that she would skate. There were all kind of accusations that I was meeting with um, different people to make sure that the ratings would be high. I did have a bet with Sean McManus, who then was uh, with IMG, uh, TWI, that if it went forward, uh, the event would get a higher rating than the Super Bowl. And he said, I'll bet you $10. And I won the $10. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there you $10. go. So, so she's going to skate, and uh, we have to make an announcement. Well, you can imagine, the press was going crazy. So Mike Moran, who was head of our uh, PR for the Olympic Committee, and I get, up on, get on the dais 
and I don't know how many thousand reporters were there. And you're right. The executive committee said, just make a statement and don't make it, don't give any facial expressions and don't answer any questions. Now, it meant two things. One, she was going to participate in, she could go and practice because when they practice, they're on the ice at the same time and she could compete. So Mike go to our the auditorium where we are and the flash bulbs and everything else were just, I had, I had a pair of glasses, for distant vision, I normally wear glasses and I had them on to see who was in the room and, and the lights were going and flaring. I take them off and a writer for USA Today, he put in the article that I was vain. I took my glasses off for picture taking. <laughs> I took it off because I couldn't see anybody. <laughs> but that's dealing with the press. Mm. So um, I make the announcement and I leave and Mike Moran gets overwhelmed. Poor guy. He gets, he gets kicked to the, you know, Christine Brennan gives him a forearm shiver from USA Today. Uh, the, some, some Chinese writer, uh, you heard the story, they set off the alarm system in the hotel where he was at so that, you know, he would have to answer questions. And, and then I go and I'm watching them practice. I'm thinking, they're going to bang into each other. <laughs> they're so close. Right. They were less than a yard from each other on some of their routines. Right. And, and it worked out okay. Fast forward, we're now at the event. And um, I'm trying to think of the guy who was the head of NBC, uh, CBS at the time. Was it, it was either Neil Pelson or Ted Shaker? Right? No, yeah. no, the president of the network, oh. not of the oh. sports. Dennis Swan? No, it wasn't no, Dennis no, no, no. It was, uh, I'll think of it in a second. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> he breaks his leg on the way over there. I mean, slips on the ice. <laughs> so so uh, we're in the arena, and you may remember that she started her routine, um, Tanya, and went to the judges to say that the lace on her skates broke. And she asked for a chance to go behind. Oh, into the, right. yeah. So she leaves. I'm back there, making sure everything's going okay. So I'm just outside the arena in the area where she's going to come into. She puts her leg up. One of her people were there. Tightens her skate. And you know what she does next? She lights up a cigarette. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, she could deny that all day long. Mm -hmm. I stood there, and I watched her smoke. While the whole world is waiting for her to come back and skate. There you go. There you go. In the room where it happened. She had the cigarette, then went back out onto the ice. Yeah. A couple wow. of puffs and went back out. Wow. So on that note, <laughs> oh my God. Smoking Tanya Harding. Yeah. Let's yeah. move on to today a little bit. Yeah, so well, I wanted to go ahead. Yeah, just tee up. Tee Trouble is, too many stories. I, well, yeah. amazing stories, by the way, and thank you for Which sharing. Which is why the book has to be Which done. Which is wonderful. Stuff. Yes, there really should be. Mm -hmm. um, but you've, you've uh, had the privilege to kind of bear witness to the changes, pretty pretty drastic changes in the sports business going back to the late 60s, into the 70s, 80s, et cetera. You were on the field with the changing distribution patterns through Ted Turner and his approach to superstations and things like that. You're now involved with some startups for sports tech, sports media startups, including our friend Ray Katz, mm -hmm. our colleague Ray Katz, is College Collegiate Sports Media Group. You've seen it all. You're seeing it all. How do you assess what's going on with the changes right now, particularly in media? Because it feels so drastic, and we've talked about this a lot. This has been a consistent theme on the podcast, and, and you probably have a better perspective than anyone. Well, I'm not sure about that, but you know, there, uh, there's a saying, the revolution already tells you something that took place. <laughs> right. Good way so, of thinking. So, yeah. so the, I think the thing about it is that 
we lived in a pretty simple world. The best thing that's happened to most sports is the living in the digital world. Combination, everything with today people talk about over the top, to cable, to other opportunities, social media, the internet. I was actually exposed to the internet in my first assignment out of pilot training in 1964. It was called the ARPANET, right. Advanced Research Projects Agency, where we talked to scientists about space launches and things. I hope, too bad I wasn't smart enough to pick up <laughs> right. and invest in it at that right. time. But Nobody will ever use this thing. And to think it took about 30 years to get to the commercial version of that, right? And absolutely. Yeah. Um, although at the SEC, we were the first group in sports to create an, uh, a computer bulletin board for our sports. Wow. Okay. So, so one of the things that I think has happened, it, I think it's the best thing that ever happened to sports, this revolution. But it's also the worst thing that's happened to sports because what it has been, it took the exclusivity of the major brands and lessened them by virtue of the new entrance into the marketplace. When I started graduate school in 1960, I remember going, seeing these people on a field kicking a ball. And I said, that's a soccer ball. Yeah, that's a soccer ball. Where do you get one? Well, you have to buy it out of a catalog in New York City. <laughs> now, you expect to see soccer on. You expect to see the various sports on. So sports have been diluted and the attention span of the public is obviously very simple. They're expecting to see highlights. They're expecting to see shorter versions. You know, there's a reason that when you're watching news and other things on television, you see a lot of advertisements for drug companies. You know, mm -hmm. They're not after a 25-year-old. And there's a reason you're seeing, you know, cheaper cars. So my early introductions into media were watching the NCAA tournament. And, and uh, an oil company was their major sponsor of the Final Four tournament going in, even into the 70s and early 80s. Why? Because in those days, people changed the oil in their car themselves. And they were tr the oil companies were trying to get that you wouldn't necessarily use your father's oil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we get you when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you're going to use whatever oil we're at, Lucas and others <laughs> that were advertising. Yeah. And... and and, you know, it, that's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody changes their oil in the car. So it's, it's not just the way things are advertised and who they're advertised to. It's the way we operate. You know, it's uh, people are living in urban areas. Well, in the early 1900s, one out of 11 people lived in a city. Today, one out of 11 live in a rural area. Mm -hmm. So everything that's happened in sports and changes and other things has been fairly dramatic and you can go into all of the social elements of it. But I think overall, the digital revolution and the way things are communicated has been the most dramatic change to the business of sport. And um, several, many years ago, I was at the, uh, in advance of the 100th anniversary of the Olympic Games, I was asked to give a talk in Paris for uh, then was a celebration of de Coubertin and others. And I decided that the subject would be, how big is the business? And you know, I couldn't measure it. Because if you just think about the United States and you think about secondary schools and high schools, the largest physical plant of that school is their sports program, mm -hmm. more than their classrooms. Mm -hmm. And if you think about energy and you think about travel and you think about how much energy you have to put into a golf course to keep it alive, through, through everything from watering to uh, adding elements 
for the growth and manicuring it and so forth. And you start you start thinking about how many arenas and ticket sales and marketing. And I guess that's why there are a few hundred schools now that teach sports management. <laughs> right. Because it's not about working for the team anymore. Mm -hmm. It's working for the extension of the team. And, and I think that, I don't know where it's going. I, I think that every sport will be diluted a little more as the future goes forward. And uh, if you live in an urban environment, odds are that there are a number of sports you don't participate in anymore. And like baseball or even football, you just, how do you find nine, 18 people to play baseball in a field in New York City? Mm -hmm. So I think all of that will begin to push the demographics in a certain way that you'll have focused demographics for every sport, but it won't be something which is general, excepting for the Super Bowl and the, you know, World Cup and things like that. And will that, do you believe that will have an adverse effect on the current business model, where it's, which is concentrated highly on network television? Absolutely, because advertisers want your eyeballs. Right, and they, they, they want to get to you and somehow. And they need those to run those commercials. So they'll find other elements, and if they think business is a sport, and I'll want to invest invest more in that kind of thing. You know, one of the things that happened uh, in the ten plus years ago was when there was a dramatic change in the real estate business in the United States, and the markets changed. And if you looked at that time on the top emailed. Um, stories that were in the New York Times, it changed from business and politics to leisure. So people are more now concerned with their own health, their own well-being. What's my life going to be? And it doesn't mean that I'm going to sit in front of a television set all day. It may be that I'm going to take on something else. So more people are buying dogs. They're doing more <laughs> yoga. They're doing all sorts of things. That's where the advertising world is going. Mm -hmm. That's where it has to go to get your attention right. and uh, certainly it's moving that way and you know there's a reason Amazon buys uh, Whole Foods not just to have access to groceries but to have that lifestyle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think the changes are such that it'll always be at the expense of the major sports look I said the revolution doesn't tell you something already happened how do you think CBS felt when Fox stepped in and bought the NFL mm -hmm. and all of a sudden their city I remember um, we had an event in New Orleans during one of the Super Bowls, and at that time, CBS had no NFL. Sean McManus couldn't get into the event. <laughs> now he's part of the event, right. yep. but somebody has to get out yeah, exactly. for him to get in. Right. So I think it's... it's. But just, just quickly, as we, cause I know we're, we're running out of time fast, and there's so much more to do. We've got to do a part two of this, but um, and this could be a longer answer, but if you could do give us a quick take on this. Do you think, um, as we look at kind of the next rounds of major rights deals, that more of the media power will be driven to Silicon Valley? It already has. I think uh, uh, Formula One and others now are doing deals with Amazon as we speak. And it's in the best interest of the networks to be exclusive. It's in the best interest of the event to have wide distribution. So they're at odds with each other. I'll pay you a big rights fee if you're the only place you can watch it. But if if they're saying, I do some work with America's Cup now, you know, New Zealand says, I want to put it out for everybody. Well, why would NBC be interested? How do they capture the audience? So I think the answer to that is clear. It's, you know, if you're going to be paid a big rights fee, we want some exclusivity. That's the nature of the beast. 
And, and you know, it's why people want to go to Columbia University. You know, they think it's somewhat exclusive compared right. to other places. Right. Right. They have a free choice of going anywhere. Although Columbia, they would have never taken me. Right. But that's for sure. That's for sure. That's for sure. And it's probably best, for, us, best yeah. for Columbia and best for me. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. So, so two quick questions. How do you stay current with everything that's going on? Who do you read? Who do you follow? Uh, and then you get this question all the time. But you know, as you talk to young people, what do you? What's the one piece of advice you give them to say? You know, this is the thing that you should be doing. If Volunteer. You want to Volunteer. Volunteer. Because your future will maybe told more in the people that you work with when you volunteer than in your occupation. That's how I got started. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if if it's you want to coach a team, you want to volunteer for some, you know, work at the hospital, whatever it is, music, opera, I don't care. Because you'll be in a different environment in your day-to-day world. And, you know, avocations often are more rewarding than vocations. Think of what people do when they decide to retire. They do more charitable things. We'll bring that early into your life. And I think that you'll be surprised uh, how many doors will be open for you with that. And and I think the second part is part of your question. Stay relevant and current. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it doesn't mean reading the sports business magazine, although, you know, if you want to, if you want to know what's going on, talk to people. Mm-hmm. What are they thinking about? You thinking about buying a car? Where are you are you renting or buying a house? Did you buy any furniture? Find out what their habits are. You live in that world. That's where you should be existing on a day to day basis. That's how you stay relevant. You read every little piece of information you can, and whether it's in print or digitally, you reach out for it. You know, people make fun of Facebook, but I learn a lot from Facebook. Yep. People post things that I would have never, ever exposed myself to, and. And, you know, you could read the Daily Mail and put up with all that stuff that's out there. But if you want to learn something, there are a lot of learned people out there. At one time, and and Joe knows this, we looked at creating a job network, an app and everything else. Turns out it just didn't play well. But one of the things you learn, there's more than a million job titles out there. Somebody's running a steamship. Mm -hmm. Somebody's out there trying to get a part in a play. Somebody, you live in this isolated world. We all do. We think we do. But you've got to expand it because that's the world you're going to live in, especially on a global basis. Be an internationalist. It's not just learning elements of a language. It's traveling. And it's having friends that live in other countries and listening to the way they speak and what they think about. You know, someone told me, um, I was with some people from Europe. I think they were from Germany. And this uh, expensive car came by. I was here in the States. And I said, yeah, it's a great car. I'll get one someday. And he said, you know, I can never do that. I'll never be able to afford it. He said, you know what happens in my country? When you see an expensive car parked, we take our key and we scratch it. Because hmm. we know we'll never get one. In this country, you see an expensive car and say, you know, I can get one of those someday. Hmm. Can I ask one more quick yeah, one? Because sure. this is just so fascinating. Maurice, do we have another minute? One more minute. Okay, quickly. Who do you think, who do you admire right now in the sports business? You've obviously had an incredible career, a lot of it based on your leadership skills. Um, you're, you're a keen observer of the industry, keen thinker about the industry. Who's, who do you admire right now? That's a difficult, really, question because you, 
look, we all have our faults, deficiencies. And I think that, I, I admire the people that have to make some tough decisions. I mean, uh, if you look at Roger Goodell as the commissioner in the NFL, he's been under an awful lot of pressure. And, you know, in those jobs, you come in with a certain amount of political power and you use it up. And then you got to make a decision, do I have any left? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, whether it was you made a mistake on the Brady with the deflagate or whether something that happened or the exposure to the salary that he has or the kind of things that he's landed, um, I think he's done a pretty damn good job of keeping the glue together of the owners. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, people like Jimmy Jones have reversed their positions and others, and they all think they can make more here and they're smarter. Mm -hmm. and I, so I, I think um, Adam Silver's doing a great job. But look, he has the challenge of what's going to happen to gambling to his business. Right. That's going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but here's an interesting thing about a commissioner, having been one. You don't have to be the best and the brightest. Because you know what's going to happen? People are going to come to your door with an idea or a piece of technology. So it's your part of implementing it and putting it in place, but you don't think about it. Mm -hmm. You didn't have the idea. Right. Remember, when Stern took over the NBA, the NBA champions were on delayed broadcast on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. It wasn't his technology had to deliver to him the ability to show live a broadcast. Right. That's not something I know David really well. You know, he's a great lawyer and a great commissioner, but, and Harvey and others, you know, we talked about a computer bowling board. That was my idea. <laughs> you know, there are some things that become your idea, yeah. but in general about employment and all, but you know, you gotta be smart in terms of your question. You gotta be smart enough to say, if I really understand it, I think I can have a better idea. Right. To be willing to have the courage to act on it. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's great. Tom, I'll wrap it up. Yeah. yeah, this was obviously part one of another one that we will yeah, do. Yeah, we need more one. time. Yeah, this is too good. But Dr. Schiller, thanks for joining us on yes, the Cusp Show. Really appreciate um, it. Oh, how, so they follow you at HW Schiller on Twitter, correct? Yeah, but I haven't been doing Twitter much. Uh oh. Uh, I should. I don't know. And, you gotta follow, and on follow Joe's lead. So, you know, yeah. uh, a couple of years ago, I put one up, and somebody called me up and said, "You know, you really angered so and so." I said, no, that's not, yeah, you better take that down. <laughs> I said, okay. Anyway, it wasn't, wasn't my intent right. at all, but I hadn't really thought about what the full repercussions are. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I have a Facebook account yep. and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, you still hire me. Any yeah. of the companies you're working with right now you'd want us to take a look at, the audience take well, a look at? Well, you mentioned the uh, Collegiate Sports Management Group. I think they got a good thing going because yeah. – those division two and three mid-major schools really need a lot of help financially and exposure. I think whatever happens there has to be positive. Mm -hmm. I think the work I do with SportsGrid, which is the analytics of the e-gaming mm -hmm. business, is interesting because we also have uh, our own little network and have done some deals. And all of the major leagues want to talk to us because they know gambling is coming and they want to be able to control what they can. And that means control the analytics as well. Mm -hmm. I think those are two. There's a company I've just joined the board of, which is called Blink, and it's Blink TBS, and we have um, the methodology, methodology for a handheld device to measure concussions. Wow. And it measures your blinking reflex of your eyes, and in spite of all the discussions about the uh, sports world, it really has a dramatic application into the military that's exposed to explosions, IED events, and others just firing weapons all the time. So those are all good things. 
There's some others, you know, uh, that are happy to do it. But I love teaching and talking to young people because that's, again, another way. Uh, I think the challenges is for the, the last piece is you have a changing workplace. The things that are coming about with the challenges of harassment and others and equality uh, among men, women, minorities, and others is something that only good leaders will be able to do, do the right job with. Uh, if, if I walk up to one of you as a male and I say, you're going to wear that outfit for Halloween? <laughs> You'd laugh and smile and know that I'm playing with you. I would say most times, and I hope this is played right, if I walk up to some woman who works for me and I say, you're going to wear that dress at Halloween? She would feel offended, and rightly so. Mm -hmm. So I have to be smart enough to say, you know what, don't be stupid and say silly things like mm -hmm. that that you think are humorous because they're not funny to everybody. Right. right. So you have new le leadership today is harder than it's ever been. Yeah. The military used to lead by command and control. Now you got to lead by participative management. Everybody gets a trophy. On that note, Tom, <laughs> uh, once well again, thank yep. you so much. Thank you. So our guest has been Dr. Harvey Schiller. I'm Joe Favorito. My co-host, Tom Richardson. Joe, thank you for another great episode. One of the best conversations we've had in my opinion. So I appreciate it. This has been The Cusp Show, and we'll see you down the line. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp